I do ask that you turn in your Bibles to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 9. And for the third and final time, we're going to examine Mark 9, 14 to 29. As you well know, this is the account of the encounter that Jesus and three of his disciples had as they came down from the mountain of transfiguration. On that mountain, heavenly realities were seen and heard. Those realities terrified the three disciples, but they they were no doubt a cause of encouragement and comfort to our Lord Jesus Christ, given to him by the Father on the hard road to Calvary. Let me read this passage where we will see as they come down from the mountain, they find the other nine disciples embroiled in a controversy that involves the Jewish scribes, a crowd of onlookers, a desperate father, a demonized son, and an unclean spirit. Mark 9, 14. When they came back, that is from the Mount of Transfiguration, to the disciples, to the remaining nine disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and some scribes arguing with them. Immediately, when the entire crowd saw him, they were amazed and began running up to greet him. And he asked them, probably asking the scribes, what are you discussing with them, namely my disciples? And one of the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought you my son possessed with a spirit which makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it slams him to the ground and he foams at the mouth and grinds his teeth and stiffens out. I told your disciples to cast it out and they could not do it. And he answered them and said, Oh, unbelieving generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring him to me. They brought the boy to him. When he saw him, immediately the spirit threw him into a convulsion and falling on the ground, he began rolling around and foaming at the mouth. And he asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. It has often thrown him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. Immediately, the boy's father cried out and said, I do believe. Help my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was rapidly gathering, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You deaf and dumb mute spirit, I command you, come out of him and do not enter him again. And crying out and throwing him into a terrible convulsion, into terrible convulsions, it came out. And the boy became so much like a corpse that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and raised him, and he got up. When he came into the house, his disciples began questioning him privately. Why could we not drive it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. And I'm aware that some of your translations do say fasting. Unfortunately, I'm not going to really talk about that that textual difference. So in this scenario, we have the crowd of people, and they are largely onlookers. Sometimes the crowd is intimately involved. Here, they're just spectators. Then we have the scribes, and the scribes are cast in their typical role. They are on the attack. Jesus wasn't there to attack, so they're attacking his disciples. And then you have the nine disciples of Jesus, bereft of Jesus because he had been on the mountain with the other three, and the disciples had not been able to cast out this demon. And uh, they didn't have Jesus there. The boy who had the demon was showing the symptoms of a grand mal epileptic seizure. 
falling on the ground, foaming at the mouth, grinding his teeth to the point of exhaustion. But what was really seizing him was not an epileptic seizure, but a demon who was causing him to to go into this epileptic seizure, also at times casting him into the fire and into the water. Then had the father. The father comes out of obvious love and concern for his son, indicated by the words he says to Jesus, help us to help my son. You would be helping me because his, his heart was broken to see his son in that condition, and he was helpless to do anything about it. Well, Jesus coming on the scene takes control, and whereas the disciples had failed to cast out the demon, Jesus succeeds. He expels the demon with a word and tells it not to come back. And then he teaches the father a lesson about faith and then explains to the disciples why they had failed to cast out the demon. Well, from this narrative, we've already seen some lessons about Satan and his agents. Last week, we learned some things about the Lord Jesus Christ from this narrative. Today, I want to wrap up our study of this passage by considering some lessons for the Christian life. I have five, and the first is this. As a Christian, you represent Jesus Christ to a watching world. The father of the demonized boy says in verse 17, Teacher, I brought you, my son, possessed with a spirit. And in verse 18, he says, And I told your disciples to cast it out, and they could not. Now note what is equated here. The father, in bringing his son to the disciples, says, I brought my son to you. In other words, he was equating bringing his son to the disciples to bringing his son to Jesus. Was that a valid equation? Was it right for him to identify the disciples with Jesus? Well, I think it was. Why? Because there's a principle basic to discipleship whereby the messenger of a man is as the man himself. Jesus taught this on several places. I'll just read one, and that is Luke 10 and verse 16. When Jesus sends out the 70 on a missions trip, it says in Luke 10, 16, as he sends them out, the one who listens to you listens to me, and the one who rejects you rejects me, and he who rejects me rejects the one who sent me. And he repeats that in Matthew 10, 40 and Luke 13, in John 13, 20. There's an identification between the sender and the one sent. So that if people receive the one sent, they are receiving the sender. If they reject the one sent, they are rejecting the sender. Now, we know this to be true in international politics, right? If we have an embassy and an ambassador in a particular nation and people attack our ambassador or kill our ambassador, they are attacking our nation. If they invade our embassy, they're invading the United States because the scent is as the sender. Not only is there an identification between the sender and the scent so far as authority, but there's also presumed to be a likeness between the one sending and the one sent. Jesus taught in Luke 6.40, everyone after he has been fully trained will be like his teacher. In other words, 
they had a right to expect that the disciples of Jesus were like Jesus because he was their teacher, he was their trainer, he was their master. And we read in Mark 6 that Jesus had endued them with the authority and power to cast out demons. And on a previous mission trip, they had cast out demons. And so there's an identification of authority. The one sent has the authority of the one sending. And there's an identification of likeness. The one who is the trainee or the disciple ought to be like his teacher. So this man rightly expected from Jesus' disciples what he expected from Jesus himself. But what did he find from Jesus' disciples? He found spiritual impotence. They were unable to cast out the demon from his son. Though they had the commission to do so, though they had the power to do so, though on previous occasions they had succeeded in doing so, on this occasion they could not expel the demon. And what was the effect of that? Well, it appears that their failure to cast out the demon had the effect of sowing seeds of doubt in the heart of the Father, even about the power of Jesus. Because when he speaks to Jesus and he pleads for help from Jesus, he adds this line, but if you can do anything. In other words, his experience with the disciples and their failure had dampened his confidence in Jesus' own ability to be of help. The commentator Richard Lenski says the implication is that the ability of Jesus is perhaps no greater or only a little greater than that of the nine disciples. Another commentator, William Lane, says his words contain a concealed accusation against the powerlessness of the disciples, which has led him, the father, to doubt Jesus' ability to offer real assistance to his son. Now, here is a sobering principle. That as Christians, whether we like it or not, we represent our Lord Jesus Christ to a watching world. And people will often draw conclusions about our God and our Savior based on what they see in our lives. And we have examples of this both, both in the negative and in the positive. Here's a negative example. In Romans chapter 2, Paul is addressing his fellow Jewish countrymen, and he, has, he says these indicting words in Romans 2.24, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You, my fellow Jews, are living such hypocritical lives that the Gentiles who do not know God blaspheme Yahweh because of the way you are living. Wow, that is a strong and powerful indictment. But thankfully, we have some positive examples as well. Listen to Paul's words in Titus chapter 2 and verses 9 and 10. He's speaking to bond slaves, or he's telling Timothy to address bond slaves in the church. One third of the Roman Empire was made up of slaves. Urge bond slaves to be subject to their own masters in everything, to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that, listen to this, they will adorn the doctrine of God our Savior in every respect by slaves conducting themselves unlike unbelieving slaves, submissively doing the will of their master, not with argument, not with complaining, not stealing from the master. By their behavior, the doctrine of God stands to be adorned, to be made attractive, to, made love, to, to be made lovely. So there's a positive sense of where the representative of Jesus is a good example. And then we have other cases in 1 Timothy 6.1, this principle is seen. 
All who are under the yoke as slaves are to regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and our doctrine will not be spoken against. The way you live will affect how people view our doctrine and our God. And then finally, in well, not finally, but in 2 Corinthians 6, 3, and 4, the Apostle Paul also articulates this same principle, that we are representatives of our Lord, Jesus Christ, even as these nine disciples were in 2 Corinthians 6, 3, and 4, giving no, offense, no cause for offense in anything so that the ministry will not be discredited. Paul tries to live as inoffensively as possible for the sake of the ministry that he is conducting. And we have a beautiful example of disciples identifying well with their Lord in Acts 4. When Peter and John are dragged before the, the Jewish Sanhedrin, we have that statement, when they beheld the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were unlearned and ignorant men, they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. Isn't that beautiful? This boldness, this courage to speak, even in the face of uh, uh, people who had power over them. We've seen this before. Ah, they've been with Jesus. And something of Jesus had rubbed off on them. And so they were, in that sense, good, in that case, good representatives of Jesus. Well, how does it touch us by way of application? We who name the name of Christ... Since we represent him, we need to ask ourselves, what kind of representative of Jesus Christ am I? Does the way I live give people a reason to want to believe in Jesus? Or does the way I live discourage people from wanting to commit to Christ? Now, let me clarify, I'm not saying that the way you or I live is the final determiner as to whether a person comes to Christ or not. That would be saying far too much. That would be denying the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign in salvation. And don't we see that sometimes people become believers in ungodly homes with very poor examples? And then there are some examples even here where you who are godly parents and in a godly family, yet you may have some unbelieving children. So whether someone comes to faith in Christ or not is not ultimately determined by how we live. That would be a burden too great for us to bear. Plus, there's enough hostility and enmity in the heart of every believer, every unbeliever, that no matter what kind of godly lives are being lived around them, they will not believe. Consider Jesus Christ, perfect, pure, incarnate love, perfect, pure, incarnate truth. And yet people rejected him and didn't believe in him. So I'm not saying that the way you or I live is the final determiner as to whether someone becomes a believer or not. Nevertheless, we still need to ask the question, how are we representing our Savior and our God? Because people will conclude truths about God and Christ by what they see in our lives. Are you being a stumbling block to anyone believing in Jesus? Or are you being a stepping stone and a drawing card for people to believe? And with ungodly people who maybe will reject Christ, will the justice of God be further vindicated because of the godliness of your life lived in front of them? Think about unsaved family members in your immediate family, parents, 
children, brothers and sisters who do not know Christ, or consider unsaved extended family members, aunts and uncles and cousins and nephews and nieces and in-laws? Is your life presenting an accurately attractive picture of Jesus to them? Or by looking at you, are they getting a distorted view of Christ? Are they more likely to be turned on to Jesus by the way you're living in front of them or turned off to him? Think about your neighbors, your work associates. You know, as the light of biblical truth grows dimmer and dimmer in our society, you may be the only born-again Christian some people know. Have you, have you thought about that? In a world where Christianity is on the wane, there's still a lot of cultural Christians, but as far as being a regenerated Christian, you may be the only one certain people know. You may be, as it were, the only Bible they ever read. And what are they seeing? By your friendliness, your kindness, your warmth, your respect, your work ethic, your words, your tone of voice, your character, your social demeanor, your lifestyle of integrity, your commitment to truth, are they getting a good picture of Jesus Christ? How about your marriage? You've heard me say that every marriage is going to preach the gospel. The question is, how well is it going to preach the gospel? Husbands, are you preaching Christ well to a watching world by your unselfish, sacrificial, servant-hearted love for your wife? Wife, are you preaching Christ well in your marriage by your respectful submission to your husband? Not slavish, doormat, but respectful, submissive regard for your husband. Are, is your marriage preaching Christ well? What does the watching world see in your home? What do they see of your children as I spoke in the, the recent wedding? Do they see your children under control with all dignity? Under control. They're respectful, they're obedient, but they're not oppressed. They're not depressed. They're happy children, but under control with all dignity. That's the biblical formula, 1 Timothy 3.4. An elder must have a children under control with all dignity. That's a beautiful picture of the gospel and its effect on a family, and it preaches the gospel well. You who are young and Christians, some of you children, who are Christians in the home, but your brothers or sisters may not be Christians. Are you being a good example to them? Has there been a visible change in your life so that before you were a proud boy or a proud girl, but now they see that you're a more humble boy or girl? Before you were a mean boy and a mean girl, but now you're a kind boy and a kind girl. Do your brothers and sisters see something of a change in you so that they're attracted? I want to become a Christian too, because I've seen what God has done in brother so-and-so or sister so-and-so. Christians, if in any area of life or relationship, you are convicted that you're not being a good representative of your Savior. I call you to do what we're always supposed to do whenever we're conscious of sin. Repent. Repent. And God is a willing forgiver. If you confess, he's faithful and just to forgive and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. You may have to even confess to certain ones in, whom, in front of whom you've been a poor example. Do that. Confess to them. I've not represented my Savior well. Ask their forgiveness. And then ask God for grace to be a more consistent 
accurate representative of your Lord Jesus. You see, this father had diminished faith in Jesus based on what he saw in Jesus' disciples. We represent Jesus. Let's represent him well. Secondly, as a Christian, you are involved in a great cosmic war. This narrative here gives us a glimpse of a war that is taking place on a grand scale in the universe. The combatants are God and Satan. Here in this little narrative, Satan is represented by one of his, um, one of his demons. God is represented by himself, his incarnate son, the Lord Jesus. And the antagonism between these kingdoms is obvious, isn't it? It is manifested in the cruel and merciless way that the demon is treating this boy. Satan and his demons hate God, and they hate the image of God in man. And part of the image of God in man is his rationality, our ability to hear and to formulate thoughts and to speak and communicate. And in his hatred for God and the image of God, this demon had rendered this boy unable to speak and unable to hear. He was trying to destroy him by casting him into the fire and into the water, you see the antagonism. The antagonism is also manifested in the fact that upon seeing Jesus, the demon throws the boy into a convulsive seizure. The mere sight of Jesus provokes in him anger and fear and a display of insolent rebellion. The antagonism is manifested in the stern command by which Jesus expels the demon. Get out and don't come back. When, friends, did this cosmic warfare begin? Well, it began before the world was created when certain angels in heaven rebelled against God and were expelled from heaven. 2 Peter 2.4 says, For if God did not spare angels when they sinned, but cast them into hell and committed them to pits of darkness reserved for judgment, and it goes on. That's when this cosmic war began when certain angels rebelled against God and were cast out of heaven. And then when God made the earth and he created man, the chief fallen angel, Satan or the devil, slithered into the garden in the form of a serpent. He tempted our first parents. They disobeyed God. They fell into sin. And as a result, they plunged the entire human race into sin. Satan then became the ruler of this world. Why is he the ruler of this world? Because sin is so pervasive that it affects every one of us, and every one of us is born as a son or daughter of disobedience. We are born, therefore, into the kingdom of Satan, not God. And this antagonism continues to this day. The warfare is between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. The seed of the woman involves all who believe God, the seed of the serpent, all who do not believe God, but the seed of the woman finds its ultimate expression in the seed, capital S, Jesus. And God promised back in the garden that the seed of the woman, Jesus, would one day crush the head of the serpent, the devil. And when Jesus comes to earth, he invades the kingdom of Satan, bringing in the kingdom of God. And the casting out of demons here presents us with just a foretaste of what will eventually be a total conquest over the kingdom of darkness by the kingdom of God. The fuller conquest would come at the cross. What a display of the wisdom of God. What a display of seeming weakness. Jesus dying 
in humiliation on the cross, but the cross became the, the source of the greatest manifestation of God's power as God raised him up. And the sacrificed and risen Savior then becomes the Savior of those who put their faith in him, and by which he delivers people out of the kingdom of darkness. The ultimate destruction of Satan's kingdom will come, of course, when Christ returns, and Satan and his demons will be cast forever into the lake of fire. So that's the great cosmic war that's been going on since the fall of man in the garden, really since the angels were expelled from heaven. And this event here, like others in the Gospels, gives us a glimpse of this titanic struggle. God's champion, Christ Jesus, engages in mortal combat with one of Satan's hosts. And you have the crowd, the scribes, the disciples, the father, son, all cut up, caught up in the middle of this great cosmic war between heaven and hell, between God and Satan. I am told that at any given time in history, there are as many as 40 wars going on in the world. Now, that must include civil wars that we hear nothing of. But man is, is such a mess that at any given time, 40, you can count probably 40 wars going on in the world. No war, no conflict is more significant than this great cosmic conflict between God and Satan because it involves everybody. Everybody is necessarily involved in this conflict, and it has eternal consequences. But thirdly, let's move to consider that as a Christian, you're not only involved in, in this, there's not only this macro conflict, but you're involved in a personal microcosmic war. Yeah, this passage reminds us that there's a great cosmic conflict overarching human history, but it also confronts us with the fact that every one of us is engaged in spiritual warfare. We see the fight not only concerns Satan, the demon, and Jesus, but human players are involved. Back in the 1980s, there was a series of books put out by Frank Peretti. You may remember them. You may have read them. This Present Darkness, followed by Piercing the Darkness. There may have been others. And I read at least the first book. And frankly, I, I could relate to it because of what I was going through in the church. I really felt that there were demonic powers that were opposing my ministry, and not that I was pure by any means. But one of the critiques of that book, it, the book does us a good service in reminding us that there is a spiritual war unseen going on around us. There are demons and there are angels and they're involved in this cosmic conflict that we don't see. But one of the criticisms, and I think it's valid, is that it makes too much of the angelic demonic warfare and it underplays the human dimension. But when you read the Bible, it's the human actors that are front and center. And so even though there is this cosmic conflict you have human players involved. The scribes are involved. They're on the wrong side of the conflict. They're against Jesus. They're against the disciples. They're in the devil's kingdom. You have the crowd, a mixed bag. Some believers in Jesus, the majority not. You have the father of the boy who comes out as one believing. He's in the right kingdom because he believes in Jesus. As to the boy, we don't know. He was delivered by the, of the demon we want to believe that he was delivered to put faith in Jesus. We don't know. And then there are the disciples. Yeah, they lose this battle, but they win the war because they, with the exception of Judas, are true believers. They're in the kingdom of God. They're on the right side. And let me say that you need to add yourself to the list of combatants in this warfare. 
because we're all engaged in a personal microcosmic spiritual war. If you're an unbeliever here this morning, you're on the wrong side of the conflict. You're on the wrong team. You're in the wrong kingdom. And that kingdom has already been defeated. And if you continue in that kingdom of Satan, it will not go well for you in this life or in eternity. And I call you to switch teams, to switch uniforms, to repent of your rebellion against God, because like the demons, you're rebelling against God. God made you for himself, but you're living for yourself. You're following your rules, pursuing your pleasures for your own glory, and you're ignoring the God who made you. That's why you're a son or daughter of disobedience. That's why you're in the devil's kingdom. And you will be there forever in the lake of fire unless you repent and believe. So I call you this morning, if you're not a believer in Jesus, child or adult, switch teams, repent of your rebellion, put your faith in Jesus, and you will land safely in his kingdom where you will be safe and blessed for all eternity. But if you're a believer, you're involved in this personal war. The grace of God has, through the gospel, has brought you out of the kingdom of darkness, and you are in the kingdom of God's beloved Son, and you are eternally safe in Jesus, and no one can snatch you out of his hand. But even though that's the case, you're not out of range of enemy artillery, and we are still the objects of Satan's attacks. We are told that he's a, a roaring lion prowling about, seeking whom he may devour, he shoots his flaming darts, his flaming arrows at us. And we have also the enemy within, our remaining sin. What are we to do? Recognize that you're still in a war. Recognize that your enemy, the devil and his allies, the world and the flesh, are ruthless and merciless, just like this demon. And recognize you need to do as Paul did, fight the good fight. You know, Paul got to the end of his life. And nearing the end, when he was to be beheaded, he said, I fought a good fight. He saw his life from the time he was converted as a spiritual fight to the end. And we need to be reminded that we're in a war, and it will be a fight to the end. And yet we need to believe that God has given all the weapons we need to fight the fight successfully. Ephesians chapter 6, and of course, it's not the time to go into that in detail, but we have the shield of faith by which we quench the flaming darts of the evil one. When he comes at you with lies, you say, it is written, it is written, it is written. And we have the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, by which speculations and every lofty thing raised up against the knowledge of God are destroyed. We need to use the weapons, and we will be victorious. But fourth of five points, as a Christian, you will face spiritual battles of varying intensity. I want to say very briefly, you notice that when Jesus says, or they ask Jesus, what, why did we fail? What went wrong? This comes out only by prayer. For some reason, this demon was especially entrenched in this boy's life. Does that point to a hierarchy among demons? We know there's a hierarchy among angels. There's a, a ranking archangel. There's probably a hierarchy among demons. Some demons perhaps have more power than others. Some are more vicious, perhaps more, um, more wicked. Um, Perhaps it's because this demon had been in the boy such a long time. He, he was deeply entrenched in the boy's life. Something made this demon especially difficult to cast out. By way of application, if we look at our enemy, the devil, the world, and the flesh as a monolithic whole, you will find that some spiritual battles will be more difficult than others. 
There will be some sins that are more deeply entrenched in your life that will be harder to get rid of and grow out of than others. And hasn't that been true in your own experience? That when you became a Christian, certain sins fell by the wayside and they've never darkened the doorstep of your life since. I remember a dear brother, he was a state trooper in New Jersey, a friend of my father's who was a a career state trooper. And um, state troopers in New Jersey are a rough bunch of guys. I've been around them for decades. And this man said that when he got converted, a couple things went immediately. His heavy drinking and his foul mouth, all gone. But, and that may be true of you, some sins gone, buried. But other sins dog your heels, and you get the sense they're going to dog my heels until I'm in glory. I think the point is accept that as reality. Some sins will be more stubborn, more entrenched, and will have to, and the warfare will be will be more bloody and more strenuous to put them to death. But take heart. They can be bled of their strength. They will be bled of their strength in this life, and one day you will be rid of them forever in glory. Fifth point, final, but a little bit longer. As a Christian, two of your primary weapons in this spiritual warfare are faith and prayer. I came to the conclusion that if there was a main point of this passage, it would have to be calling us to faith. Why do I say that? Because in verse, well, for this reason, what does Jesus openly lament upon hearing of his disciples' failure? Oh, unbelieving generation. What does Jesus challenge in the Father who says, if you can, if you can, all things are possible to him who believes. And when the disciples ask, why did we fail? Jesus in Mark says, these thing, these, this kind cannot come out by anything but prayer. But Matthew says, because of the littleness of your faith. And faith and prayer go together. What is prayer? Prayer is the language of dependent trust and faith. Why do we pray? Because we don't have the power within ourselves, and we're looking to God to supply what is needed. And let's talk about faith for a few minutes. Faith, its vital importance and its true nature. The vital importance of faith is seen in the horrible nature and fruits of unbelief. Unbelief wrung from Jesus this cry, oh, unbelieving generation. It's interesting. He didn't say, oh, unloving generation. Oh, ignorant generation. Oh, immoral generation. But what grieved him most? Oh, unbelieving generation. Unbelief was the sin that plunged our whole human race into our current state. Our first parents believed Satan rather than believing God. Unbelief keeps people from coming to God and the good news. Hebrews 4.2 says, For indeed we have had good news preached to us, just as they also, but the word they heard did not profit them because it was not united by faith in those who heard. Unbelief makes it impossible to please God. Hebrews 11.6, Without faith it is impossible to please him. And unbelief damns people to hell. God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him might not perish, but have everlasting life. And then he goes on to say in verse 18, he who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already. The vital importance of faith is also seen in the crucial role that it is given. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. Again, Hebrews eleven six. 
Faith is the instrument that connects us to God's salvation, Romans 5.1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Faith is what causes the devil to flee. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him, firm in your faith. Faith, John says in 1 John 5, overcomes the world. And here Jesus says, all things are possible to him who believes. What is faith, though? What is faith? Faith is not mystical, it's not subjective, it's not nebulous and elusive, it's not feelings, it's not impression. Spurgeon says this, faith is not a blind thing, for faith begins with knowledge. It is not a speculative thing, for faith believes facts for which it is sure. It is not an unpractical, dreamy thing, for faith trusts and stakes its destiny on the truth of revelation. Here is a clear statement of what faith is using Abraham as the example. He is the great example, exemplar of faith for both Jew and Greek. And in Romans 4.20, we read, Yet with respect to the promise of God, he did not waver in unbelief, but grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. Faith is not this mystical, elusive, nebulous thing. You know what faith is? It's believing God. It's taking God at his word. God says it, and I believe it, and I will act upon it. And so this father does display faith in Jesus. I believe. He believed that Jesus was more powerful than the demon. And he believed that Jesus could cast out that demon. The father believed. And the disciples failed to believe why? They had been given the power, they had been given the commission to cast out demons. They cast out demons before. Perhaps they lost faith in that promise. Or perhaps they began to think that the power came from themselves and were trying in their own strength to cast out the demon rather than in Jesus' name. So I ask you, as we draw near to a close, if faith is the main point of this passage, where are you battling to believe. Maybe men at work, you know, you see other men, they're getting ahead because they're cutting corners and they're being dishonest and they're slandering and they're fudging and, and they're getting ahead. Will you at work be ruthlessly honest, upright, a man or woman of integrity and trust the God of Psalm 75, 6 and 7, of whom it is says, for not from the east, nor from the west, nor from the desert comes exaltation, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another. If you are unmarried and you long to be married, which is a, a right desire, some single people become so desperate that they begin to lower their standards. Will you resist doing that and believe the God who says in Psalm 84, 11, no good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. Wait on him. Maintain your high standard. If he wants you to be married, he will provide a godly man, a godly woman. Don't lower your standards. There's a book I recommend to single women and sometimes single men. It's called She's Got the Wrong Guy, Why Smart Women Settle. It's a really good book. Maybe you're a mother at home and work at home is hard and tedious and the world disparages, has for decades, you know, the, the mother working at home. And sometimes the work seems undignified and slavish. But then you remember that God says in Titus 2.5, women are to be workers at home. And they shall be saved. They shall be sanctified through childbearing. Will you believe God and stay at your post and be faithful, trusting God will give you a rich reward? 
you have a decision to make, and you're inclined in one direction. But the Bible says in an abundance of counselors, there's safety. And you go to all your godly friends, and they say, no, you shouldn't do that. You should do this. And all your godly friends are lined up in one direction, but you want to do something other. Will you believe God, who says in an abundance of counselors, there's safety, and follow the counsel of your friends and not lean on your own understanding? Maybe you have a job offer somewhere. It's a good job offer. It's, a, it's an increase in pay, but there's no good local church around. Well, Jesus said, seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. And his kingdom is best represented currently in the church. Will you believe God and say, it's a good job, but if there's no church, it's not good for my soul and my family's soul, and I say no to that job because I believe God, and I need to seek first the kingdom of God. And we can go on and on. Jesus wants us to believe him. He wants, us to he wants to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is perfect toward him. But like the man, like the father, our faith is not perfect. Can we all not say, I believe? Help my unbelief. How do we help unbelief? Ask, say, Lord, I believe. Help my unbelief. And then watch those who are believing God and watch, see the outcome of their faith. Look to those who are trusting God, take him at his word, and see what happens and see how faithful God is to buttress your own faith and then simply believe God and let him prove himself to you faithful. Believe him. That's what faith is. Believe what God has said. But not only is there the weapon of faith, but there's um, prayer. Faith and prayer are linked together. If faith looks to God to accomplish his word, prayer asks of God to do the same. Prayer and faith go together because prayer is the language of dependent trust. These come out only by prayer. So much could be said about prayer, but our time is gone. A series of messages can be given on prayer. But let me say this. Do you want the measure of your prayer life, whether you're being self-dependent and self-trusting or whether you're you're, you're a person of prayer. How much do you pray? How much do you pray? Now, we can do rain repetitions, but how much you pray is often the measure of your faith. Do you, do you pray to God for the little things and the big things? In all your ways, acknowledge him. God wants us to depend on him for everything, and he wants us to pray often and pray about the little things and pray about the big things. He wants to show himself strong on our behalf through faith, which is evidenced in our prayers. Let's pray. Father, help us to receive your word, take it to heart, and be doers of it for Jesus' sake.